are continuing in the book of Mark, so open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Or one real quick additional announcement on top of all that we did this morning. February is going to be a fun month. Something new that we are doing we've never done before. How many know we do a chili cook-off every year, right? And uh, I know Justin's not here today, so we're not going to talk about Justin. Uh, but I've been advocating for a couple of years to say, Justin, that's fun, you know, but chili, seriously, look around this room. We, we, can, we can cook better than that. And so on February 25th, that's a Saturday, we're having our first annual t- Taste of Hope. And what we're asking is for you to cook your culture, bring it, and we're going to celebrate together. And oh, by the way, that's my birthday weekend. And someone asked what I want to do for my birthday. I said, I want to have a Taste of Hope at Charlotte's Hope Church and eat some food from West Africa, from India, from Asia, from, from Texas and West Virginia, whatever your culture may be. Just don't show up with Bojangles, somebody. Come on. We can, we can do better than that. So... Someone always asked, they said, what's the food culture of Charlotte? I'm like, I don't know. I really don't know. Bojangles, there you go. But uh, I, I know that we are going to have a lot of fun with that. So mark it down, March, uh, February 25th. And I'm hitting the big 6-0 this year, people. Come on. You, you got to come and comfort me. You got to come and comfort me that night. That's a, that's a big decade. I don't know. Some of your older guys are like, yeah, get over yourself. I know. I know. Look, we've been having fun plowing through the book of Mark, and I hope that it, it doesn't scare you because we're on week five and we're still not out of chapter one yet. And you extrapolate that. There's 16 chapters. We'll be here until Jesus comes back. But we're trying to do something that is so critical, and it's interesting. I'm hearing it throughout the, the, the news. I'm hearing it throughout church circles, ministry circles. It, it's very interesting how there's this conversation going on in, in America right now that says, you know what? The church better get back to Jesus. The the church needs to get back to Christ. Christians need to get back to where their identity matches their testimony because the world's tired of what it's seen, and yet it is hungering for what is real. And I believe our Father gave us a testimony when he saved us from our sin. I believe our Father gives us a testimony when he shows us his greatness. And the only way we're going to get back to him is to look at Jesus, what he said, what he did, and for us to truly follow him. So today I encourage you guys, open your hearts up and let God speak to you. This We're talking today about the priority of the pause, the priority of the pause. So far, we, we've seen Jesus Come to earth. God invades the earth through his son, Jesus Christ, to bring freedom to the captives, which is us. He brings them to break the powers of darkness and allow us to walk free of oppression, free of that curse of sin, and to be his witness, engaging in relationship with our God. We've seen Jesus do things that we need to do. We should do. There is an obedience about him. Oh, he was baptized by John the Baptist, though he didn't need to be baptized, but he was following the Father. We see the Holy Spirit come upon him in church. I don't know how you can survive as a follower of Jesus Christ today without a living relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need his anointing. We need his empowerment. We need his filling in our lives. Like Paul said to the church at Ephesus, we need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time shot, somebody. We need an overflow of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives if we're ever going to have an impact. We've seen Jesus uh, proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And oh, I love to see when the kingdom of God is near. I love when I see peace, joy. 
I love when we're in the presence of God. I, I love when I, when I see oppression being broken. A, a group of men from Hope this week went to a, a men's conference in Raleigh. I got to be there Friday night, and I was expecting to kick back and not be a pastor for a moment and just get to take it all in. And then they're like, okay, all the pastors come up front. We're going to pray for men. And I looked around. There's only five of us there. I'm like, great, this is going to be a long night. And the first guy that comes up, these were his words. I am so oppressed by addiction, I don't know what to do. I said, buddy, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near, and we're going to believe right now for God. And I pulled some of our men around there. I'm telling you what, I didn't have to pray. They prayed, and God began to set that young man free, guys. We are trusting God that the kingdoms be evidence in us. And we recognize that that comes out of a few things. It comes out of submission. We submit to God. The kingdom of God does not have dual citizenship. Either we are part of it or we're not. We cannot be of this world, I mean, of this world and of the kingdom at the same time. The Bible says we're in it, but we're not of it. We live uniquely differently if we're going to have our witness and our testimony lining up. Last week, we saw Jesus perfectly revealing this. Submission leads to authority. We saw it in his teaching, but we also saw it in this. Read it in verse 25 where it says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Who was the him? It was the man who was, who was possessed by an unclean spirit. And he said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Can I tell you, there are reasons to miss church sometimes, but you didn't want to miss church that day. There's some reasons to, to not be in the body of Christ sometimes, but you know what? If we're truly letting the kingdom of God be evident and the power of God flowing, you never know what to expect. Unclean spirits get cast out in the name of Jesus. Oh, we say, does that still happen today? Yes, and it needs to happen more. Yes. It needs to happen more. But we don't need for Jesus to show up because he shows up in us. Can I get a witness, somebody? He shows up in us. We've been given the authority. We've been given the power. We've been given the name of Jesus. It's not about us, but it's about him. So at this point in the story where we're going to go today, I'm thinking Jesus needs a break. I'm thinking about this time in the story. I'm like, man, he's got to be worn out because, again, a lot has happened as we walk through his story. But we see this word that I highlighted last week brought up in our text today, and it begins in verse 29 where he says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. So picture Jesus. He's been at the synagogue that morning. He gets up and teaches. We don't know what he taught, but yet in that moment, he is, he is confronted by a man with an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit controlling his life. And Jesus exercises the authority and the power of his father, and he delivers him. He casts him out, and you can imagine at that moment, talk about a high-five moment, right? I don't know how he did it, but I know me. When I come out of a service on Sunday morning, I'm just thinking, give me a nap, give me some food, and I'm done. I don't know how we used to do Sunday mornings and Sunday nights in the early days preaching both of those. I don't have that energy anymore. But here's Jesus. He's, he's come out of this high moment. He goes over and Andrew and Simon, they're like, hey, come over. You know, my mother-in-law can cook. It's going to be an amazing night. We're going to have dinner, kick back. And he gets there. No, mother-in-law's sick. She's lying in a bed dying. And Jesus does something that's so amazing. He, out of compassion, he touches her hand. 
Out of compassion, he heals her. Can I tell you that Jesus doesn't need a crowd for his power to be revealed? So many times you're like, oh, if I can just get to church, maybe something will happen. He can touch you in your living room right where you are. He can walk through you when you sit around the family table and say to your child, I know maybe things aren't going well, but we're going to believe God to touch your life and change you this morning. Guys, we don't have to wait for Sunday. Religion can keep you from Jesus. But when we're in relationship, he's with us always. Now, I know when you read the Bible, I don't know if you read it like I do, but I, my, my first brush when I read that, I, I'm, I'm thinking, God, that, that kind of reminds me of, of, of what we did it early on in Hope and we still do today. We had a, we had a saying to, uh, very early in our days that said, we're going to be all there for whoever's there. Be all there for whoever is there. That means if, if you start a group of people and you're going to come around the Word of God together, one person shows up, you don't go, oh, well, this was a waste of time. No, it means that one person might need everything you have to pour into their life that night. You don't wait until there's a crowd to say, well, that matters. No. If God calls you to do something, do it. Because if it changes one life, who knows who they're connected to? Who knows who they're going to touch? And it multiplies and it multiplies and it multiplies. Back in the day, they'd always say, oh, we don't know their name, but can you imagine who was Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher when he was a kid? You know, the one that's like, oh, great, I got the toddlers again. He didn't know that Billy was one of them, right? You never know who's, who's back there. So be all there for whoever's there. But also when I read this, I thought, you know, <laughs> to the wrong impression, it could kind of sound patriarchal. You know, we had to heal the woman because somebody had to cook dinner. But that's not what's happening here. <laughs> Here's what's happening here. When you've truly been touched by Jesus, you can't help but serve. When you've truly been touched by Jesus, you can't help but serve others. In fact, if we're not serving, I question whether we've been touched by Jesus or not. People are like, well, how do I know I'm really saved? Are you serving? Are you seeing others as better than yourself? Are you, are you looking for opportunities to love people in the name of Jesus? Because again, if we've been touched... We serve. It's an evidence of the outflow of our lives. It's an evidence of the kingdom of God. There was an old saying in the church in Ireland that said, we are saved to serve. We, we, why do we try to love our neighbors? Why do we try to feed people? Why do, do, do we do that to make a name for ourselves? No. We do it because we've been touched by Jesus. We've been saved by his grace. We've been provided by our king. He is overwhelming us with his love. How can we not serve others if we've been touched by him? Then the story continues. Jesus at this moment has to be thinking, I need a break. I've taught in the synagogue. I've healed Peter's mother-in-law. And now I'm ready to go to bed and a knock comes on the door. Pick it up in verse 32. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. How long do you think it would take to minister to the whole city? I, I, I don't picture Jesus standing at the door and doing one of these things like, go home, you're all blessed, get out of here. Because throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus would not just focus on needs, he always focused on people. And he always focused on individuals. 
And I picture in my mind out of this story, him taking time to say, hey, you come here, you're sick, let me pray for you. You, hey, with the demon over there, come here, you're done with that, let's cast that out. I can just see him again and again ministering over and over throughout the night. Why? Because his compassion was flowing to those who were hurting. And his compassion is still flowing to us today. And we have to recognize that even maybe in his tiredness, there was a point where he stopped and said, but they've come to be ministered to, and he ministered them in the power of his might. I mean, think about the desperation of that day. Put yourself back in those times. You might have to travel overseas to some various countries to experience this, because we don't think about it this way. There are places still today where the lack of Tylenol means a child may die. Where, where the simplest ointment for a cut that we don't even think about could cause someone to lose life. Well, in the first century time of this, when Jesus was preaching in Capernaum, that's what was happening here. So you can imagine the desperation of those who waited for his touch. They, they, they lined up. They stood out. Nobody was complaining like, man, I can't believe he hasn't got to number 22 now. Because when you're desperate, you're going to wait for what you need. When you're desperate, you're going to trust and believe something's going to happen. Guys, there was a faith that rose up in that night, and that's why we saw the healing and the deliverance taking place. So all night he's healing. All night he's delivering. And the story continues on. Pick it up in verse 35. And rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he, what does it say? There he, say a little, you guys are more than that. Come on, say it. You yell for Mel. There he, thank you. There we go. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, check it out, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Can you imagine you're in the city and you take your daughter who's been suffering for years and you've prayed many nights with tears, oh God, can she just walk? You know, and, and then it happens. You show up and there's a miracle worker at Simon's house. You bring your daughter that night somewhere around 2 in the morning. He lays his hands on her and she's out doing skip jumping rope the next morning. Do you think you're not going to tell somebody else about that? So they told their families. They, I don't know how they told them in that day. They couldn't call them, but they, the word got out. People are showing up. It's not even dawn yet. They're lining up. They look around and where's Jesus? He's not there. In fact, he's not going to be there. And the disciples were caught up in something we get caught up in today. I, I'm sure that, that people were expecting and they were, they were ready and the disciples panicked. They're like, Peter, we, we thought you were keeping your eyes on him. No, I thought John was. And well, where is he? We don't know. But we got all these people out here. They had not yet understood that he came to empower them to minister to people. But they're like, where did he go? And they're panicking. It was their first experience of, of Jesus slipping away to pray and they go and find him and their words were so telling. They said, everyone Everyone is looking for you. What they're saying is, Jesus, you're a hit. Man, it's good to be on your team, Jesus. We're the most popular guys around. I mean, they're lining up outside of the house. Come on, let's go show off your power some more. But notice what Jesus said. Let us go on to the next towns, verse 38, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. First thing I want you to see this morning, and it's a trap we get caught up in, that is this. They wanted more action, but Jesus showed them the priority of the pause, the priority of prayer, the priority of getting alone with the Father. They wanted action. Oh, let's go do something. He's like, oh, I am doing something. 
I'm spending time with the Father. Because by spending time with the Father, Jesus kept a clear understanding of who he was and what he was there to do. Can I tell you, life is a lot easier when you know who you are and what you're there to do. And we only find that in prayer. We don't find that by having someone else tell us the answer to that. No, we find that in prayer. We come and we let the, let the Father speak in our life, the Holy Spirit to speak in our life. And that's exactly what was happening in Jesus. In this moment, he is reminded by the Father, don't get caught up in this. Don't get caught up in the popularity. Don't get caught up in the crowd. I've called you to preach the good news. I've called you to teach the way, the truth, and the life. I've called you to show them a better way. It's not just about the miracles, but all of the people wanted the miracles. I mean, let's be honest. We all want miracles, don't we? If I did a poll around the room today and said, who are you believing for a miracle? We'd all be like, yes, we are. Why? Because on this earth, we live in the, the overflow of sin. We live in the backwash of other people's sins. And we are caught up in the, in the brokenness that is this world. And that's why we long for something better that has been promised to us eternity with our Father in heaven where there'll be no more sickness, no more lines for prayer. Come on, somebody. No more demons to cast out. No, none of that. But while we're here, we want that. We want the miracle. But Jesus said, I'm moving on. I'm moving on to preach. Listen, if we're going to focus on who Jesus is and we're going to focus on what he did in order to reconnect the church to Jesus, then we must realize what his primary purpose was. Listen, his prime directive, so to speak, was not to fix lives with a temporary fix, but to proclaim the way, the truth, and the life that would re-engage them with a relationship with the Father and truly change their lives for eternity. Let me state it another way. Jesus didn't die to make your life better. But oh, most of us think that. He died so I can have a good marriage. Maybe you don't have such a great marriage, but you're shining like star in the dark sky and you're the salt and light in that relationship and in the community and you're making a difference beyond what you can imagine. It doesn't preclude you from praying, oh God, heal this. But what if he doesn't? What if he moved to the next town? What if he's gone to preach? Well, then forget him. God's not good because he didn't heal my grandma. God's not good because he didn't answer all my prayers. God did not send his son to die on the cross so that our lives would be better. He sent his son to die on the cross so our lives would be changed forever. We'd have a new life. Not just an old, better life, but a new life. Now we have a different purpose. We have a meaning. and our, The sins are forgiven. The curse is broken over us. Why? Because he didn't come to give us a temporary fix. Because guess what? You could, have a, you could have that child in Capernaum we spoke about who now can skip rope, but if she, ever know, if she never knows who God is and never know who the Savior is, what good is that? It's a better time on earth. But eternity is a whole lot longer than earth. This is like a breath. It's like a whisper. So we must recognize again, I know, I know, I, I read this, I put my notes, and man, it seems uncaring. I, can't, I would have hated to be Peter or James or John or, or Andrew to look at those people and say, they're like, where is he? They're like, well, we, we're, 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 we sent someone to find him. Well, where is he? We're ready. They're lining up. They're desperate. And finally they have to go, yeah, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. 
Oh, we're going to see Jesus out of compassion, touch others and heal and deliver them. But early in the morning, this solitary place, Jesus was reminded of his primary calling was to preach the good news and ultimately have his life sacrificed on the cross at Calvary. He walked away from success to walk in the Father's will. He walked away from success and popularity to teach. And you know, if we think about that, if the primary purpose of the God who came for us was to teach, then our primary purpose ought to be to learn. To learn so that we can teach others. To learn that we can show others the way. Say, well, I just show up for the miracles. I just show up for the emotional moments. I just show up for the feeling we get when we gather. Can I tell you, the best thing we can walk out here today with is learning to be passionate and to prioritize our time with God. Because when we know him, then we'll know who we are. And when we know who we are, we'll know what we're made for. And can I tell you, when we know what we're made for, life gets a whole lot more fun. When you can wake up and say, I was made for this. Not like, oh my gosh, I got to go to the office again. Oh, those kids want to be fed again. I don't understand what they're about. We were made for this to be his witnesses, to be his hands extended, to to go where he calls us to go and to minister the grace that he's given to us. So we must learn to understand again why he came and what he's doing in our lives. But if we're honest, the vast majority of us coming to Jesus is not about learning, it's to come to gets. Come to gets. Most of our prayers are focused on what we want to get from him more than to know him. And we've got to be careful. There's a couple of observations I just want to point out, just a couple of warnings we've got to be careful about if we're really going to move to this place where our identity and our testimony line up. And the, and the first warning is this. We've got to be careful uh, not to be found chasing the miracles, but not the message. Chasing the miracles, but not the message. I've been in some major revival meetings over my time and where people will drive for miles, literally fly across the country to show up at a certain church because God is doing supernatural things there. And oftentimes I've caught myself wondering, I said, I wonder how many are going to go home disappointed tonight because they missed the message behind the miracle. They may wake up tomorrow morning feeling good, but they have no relationship to the Father and they're empty. And they're really no better off. In fact, in some ways they're ruined. We've got to be careful that we don't chase the miracle and forget the message. Here's a little fact for you. You can do this as you read through the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, it's only recorded that Jesus performed about 37 miracles in total. And out of those, a lot did not directly involve healing or deliverance. It was like turning the water into wine, those type of things. Only 37 miracles. And yet... So much of our focus is on the miracles. But if we understand him, we understand him that his compassion allows the power of God to come out and heal, but that's not his goal. In fact, he often avoided the lines of people who were just seeking the miracles. He had to keep moving. He had to keep telling the demons, stop telling people who I am. (laughs) I'm I'm on a purpose here. I'm on a plan here. I'm walking toward the cross and I've got to get there, but I didn't come just to heal everybody. I came to show them the way. You see, the second thing we have to be careful of is we can't be found seeking God for success without surrender. I always get a little antsy when someone says, would you please pray for my business, pastor, that we can be successful. And I'm like, okay, let's have a conversation of successful. Does that mean when your bank account gets better, I'm never going to see you in church again? Oh, you're not tithing now, so you're going to start when you get wealthy? 
So you're, you're, you're wanting God to bless you, but you're not surrendered to him even now. Do you really want me to pray? We've got to be careful that success isn't this goal. God, if, you, if you're our God, then Lord, we, we're going we're gonna to hit every sales goal. We're going we're gonna to break through. We're going to be the best of the best of the best. And that might happen, but it won't happen without surrender to God. Because he's not coming to grow your business. He's coming to grow you. And we have to recognize that. Guys, any success we have, it has to be, it has to be coming through, through that surrender. Because if not, we're like the disciples. They love the popularity. They love the miracles. They love the excitement. Yet Jesus had to say to them, that's not why I came. And he got away to pray. Now notice what he went to pray. He wasn't praying because things were going poorly. He wasn't praying because of this sense of failure. No, he was praying because things were going so well that in his own flesh, remember Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. In his own flesh, how could he not get caught up in it? Oh, this is amazing. I'm casting out demons. I'm praying for people. They're getting healed. I'm seeing families reunited. This is amazing. He could have just stayed right there and never made it to the cross. But he went to pray. He went to seek the Father. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to pray in failure. Oh, God, what did I do? God, help me out. Bail me out. God, what, what, what can change? It's harder to pray in the middle of success. Because in the middle of success, we forgot that it's God that's in control and not us. It's harder to come and say, God, help me not get out of your will because things are going well. God, help me not get caught up in the crowd, God. Help me not get caught up in the emotion, Father. Help me to stay true to what you made me to be. You see, Jesus knew that he needed to prioritize the pause because the disciples, these early disciples, they, they had the right Messiah. They just had the wrong mission in mind. He came to make us something instead of we've come to serve him. Listen, they knew he was the son of God. They got that. But if you read through the book of Mark, which you're encouraging you to do, you, you got to recognize that the earliest disciples really didn't understand his purpose until the very end when he died and rose from the grave. And so often, if we're not careful, we forget his purpose as well. And we see Jesus as a fix or a band-aid more than a Messiah, more than our Savior, more than our God. And it's a warning to us. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. It's a, it's a warning to us that, that we really have to battle, and that is this. We must not look at God as being useful. Let me say it again. We must not look at God as being useful. Well, if I'm a Christian, then he's going to help my finances. He's going to cure my sicknesses. He's going to give me a better job and a better marriage than those that don't know him. And although we see the outflow and we see the blessing, he didn't come to be worshipped because he was useful. In fact, if we worship him only because he's useful, then we'll only worship him when things are going well. We'll only worship him when the answer has come. No, we don't worship Jesus because he's useful. We worship him because he's worthy. He is God who's come to earth. He came to banish Satan. He came to overcome the works of evil for us and to die on a cross to take our place that our sins would be forgiven and forever we would be with our Father. So we can't just see him as useful. Oh, he's touched our lives. We've been changed. I mean, I, I prayed the other day, God, thank God the old mic is gone. Hallelujah. And don't amen, Denise. It's just like, thank God. Thank God. I asked you the other day, do you know, do you know where your old self is buried? 
You need to know that. I can take you back to college heights assembly of God, fifth pew back from the front on the left side. Because that's where the old Mike got buried. When I said, I'm done. I'm done. You have control, God. I surrender all. We need that. You need that. You see, he touches our lives. He changes our lives. But he didn't come just to make successful. Jesus wasn't in it to win it. He came to teach and to serve and ultimately give his life for our freedom. So let's look at this priority to pause. Just in our our closing moments today, let's look at this idea of prayer. Because prayer is one of those things we talk a lot about and we do very little. It's something we struggle with, except for those who really enjoy it. And I find those are few. Because prayer is an engagement that takes effort. But yet so often we don't pray because we misunderstand prayer. And I want to help you out with that this morning. I just looking at some things that really, what are the secrets to prayer? Because that's one of the areas that all of us, if we're truthful, if we're honest, could say, oh, we could do a whole lot better. And the first secret is this. The secret to prayer is simply having secret prayers. The secret to prayer is simply having secret prayers. Oh, if I, if I called you out right now, there's very few of you would be okay with this. But I'm like, hey, hey, stand up and pray for everybody right now. Would you do that? You're like, oh my gosh, no. It's like the fear of public praying and the fear of public speaking are right there together. But yet we think of prayer as, oh my goodness, I need to say the right words. I need to speak with the right tone. In my day growing up, you had to pray in the King James for some weird reason. I'm not sure. Oh, thou us beloved father who chasing us, whatever. I'm like, man, do you order your burger that way? Because I can't even understand you, much less God. But if we're going to have prayer, the secret is praying in secret when nobody's around. It's not the length of our public prayers that count. It's the power of our private prayers that matter. Listen, public prayer can become a performance unless we spend time with the Father privately. It can become a performance unless we spend time privately. I mean, look at what Jesus prayed for in the moment. Do you see it there in the scripture? No, you don't, because it didn't tell us. It didn't tell us what he prayed for at all. And I believe this, the reason it's not there is this, is because we would turn it into a mantra to repeat, because we were people that would chase the mantra instead of the master. Oh, if I just say these magic words, he'll come. We might as well be jacking the beanstalk. Then with some magic beans. I've had people approach me because they've been to a a prayer meeting somewhere and say, oh, pastor, if you would just pray this prayer every Sunday, the Holy Spirit would move in this place. I'm like, when did we turn this relationship into witchcraft? When when did we turn it into witchcraft? You see, if we're going to pray powerfully, it comes when nobody's around. It comes when nobody can hear you but your dog, in my case. It it comes in that place where you're not impressing anybody with your vocations. You're just coming and you're spending time with God and saying, I want to know you. Because the secret to our prayer is coming to our Father and speaking to Him as His child. Phoenix and I have three kids. They're all grown and moved on and all that in life. But can I tell you, they were all different. And they all came to me differently. They all spoke differently. They They didn't mimic each other. And you come as a parent to know what to expect when they come because you know them. And when we are with our Father God, He's not asking you to come like I would come to Him. He's asking Him to come like you would come to Him. In your voice, in your need, in your love, and your acceptance. So the first thing is our, is our private prayers. Prayer is also not something we do. It's someone we're with. 
We don't, we don't all oh, got to set aside a time to pray because the pastor said that. No, it means you set aside a time where, Father God, you have my whole attention. You have my whole heart. There, there's nothing else I want to do or would rather do. It's about spending time in the presence of God. Simple example. Without blood, the body has no life. Can we agree with that? If I, if I bled out here right now, y'all would be like, oh, dear God, let's go bury him. There's no life. In the same way, without prayer, your relationship with God has no life. Because there's no communication. I've never had a good relationship with somebody I can't communicate with. Yeah, we love each other. I'm just going to ignore you till Jesus comes. No, that's not a relationship. That's a little taste of hell on earth. If we're going to be with God, then we, we've got to spend time with him. It's a matter of just being in his presence. I was challenging uh, us on, on Wednesday night on our, our first Wednesday. I said, when's the last time you just stood in God's presence and asked him for nothing? And he just wanted to be with him. Here's the third thing about prayer. It's not about getting what we want, but, but connecting with who we are talking to. God is, our goal is not to be heard and get what we want. I, I, I've got to confess, I'm good at public praying. I know that's arrogant to say that, but I've had 37 years of, pr of practice. And when you're a pastor, everywhere you go, if they have a public prayer, yes, they're going to figure out you're there. Oh, Mike's here. He can pray. Thanks. I just wanted to eat, man. It's okay. But we can be good at it. Some of you have the gift of gab. Can I just get a yes to that? But you know what? I have to be real. I have to work hard at just showing up to be in God's presence, and to be quiet and to listen. That's not easy for me. But I know if I don't, I have nothing to offer. I know if I don't, I lose sight of who I am and what I'm made for. I know if I don't, then I'm just going to make God useful in my life, and I'm only going to be one of those fair-weather believers that only praise Him when things are going good because I know I'm flesh like everybody else. So we have to recognize it's not about just getting what we want. It's, it's connecting with who we're talking to, and it involves both talking and listening. Some of us are not good at listening. Can I get a yes? I used to teach a course in the community college on active listening, and I felt so hypocritical while I was teaching it. I mean, I'm like, I don't want to hear what you got to say. Okay, I'm sorry. I got stuff to say. I'm a preacher. That's what we do. But yet if I'm going to talk to God, I got to listen because he is speaking. But there's so much static on the line that if we don't learn to listen, all we get is the static. So it involves this. Listen, we practice the presence of God, which is one of the seven evidences of the kingdom of God. And when we value his presence more than being heard, we really find him providing the very things we want anyway. Because he said if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things he will add to our lives. In other words, all these things, we come with a little checklist. God, oh, yeah, i got to pray for Susie and Tom. And, oh, yeah, I gotta have, we need hamburger, God. And eggs are ridiculous, God, so please give us some eggs and protect us from the Chinese balloon flying over. And, you know, we, we can just go down the list. Or we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God says, you know, i got all that. I had all that before you even asked. And you've been on the clock for 20 minutes, and you've yet even asked what I want. You see, we've got to learn to both talk and to listen because prayer, the next key is this, prayer is the key to union with God and separation from the enemy. 
Because when I'm praying, I'm in the presence of God. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. The power of God is working in me. The enemy may try to come and invade there, but that is the most powerful moments where you go, no, no. I am not listening to the lies you have, Satan. I'm not listening to the lies. I'm not being, I'm not being deceived or distracted. I am with the Father. Leave me alone. It's a union with God that builds that up in us. It may feel awkward when we first start praying. It may feel awkward to communicate. Listen, it's no different than, than when I met Denise the first time in the middle of the service, you know, middle of the night. I mean, middle of the service. I should have been listening to the preacher, but I was focused on holding her hand. And, and, and that holding hand meant I had to talk to her later. And as a, as a teenage boy, we're not always good at that. And it felt awkward. You know, over 40 years later, of us being together, knowing each other. It's just natural. It just feels right. It's the same way of praying. At first, you're like, I don't know what to say to a holy God. Just say, I'm here. I want to know you. And I know you want to know me. Here's the next thing. I've got to move on. Praying is more about changing our lives, not changing God's mind. <laughs> there is a vein of, of Pentecostalism that teaches uh, that, that basically you can manipulate God. If you just say the right things and know the right scriptures, well, God, your word said, so you have to. Hey, I don't know what your dad was like. My dad was a very gentle man, but I'd never looked at my dad and said, well, you got to because your word says. I'd have ducked. I can't imagine in prayer, well, God, you've got to. Come on, what's wrong with you? Come on, let's get on the, let's get on the job. God, let's go. No, you don't manipulate God. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, I want healing in this instance. But God, if there's a reason you're not healing, then God, use it for your glory, God, because that's more important. And shape me and change me into who you want me to be. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, when the son came and demanded of the father, you owe me. Give me what is mine. He broke the relationship with the father. You owe me. Give it to me. He goes off and he squanders everything. You know the story. He comes back. He's repentant. And then when he was finally broken, he comes back home. And his first words to his father were this. They were, Father, make me. Not give me. Make me. And his life was restored. His position was restored. His relationship was restored. Oh, can I tell you a secret to prayer is not God give me, but it's God make me. God, make me more in your image. God, 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 move in my life. God, take the rough edges off, Father. God, help me stop being so sandpaper to people, and God, help me be loving, right? It's just coming to God and saying, God, you know me better than I know myself, God, so here I am. Shape me and make me, God, so that I may reflect your glory. And that renews our relationship. Guys, listen, we need to prioritize the pause. We need to get in the presence of God and say, God, who, who am I? What have you made me to do? Because when we understand that, our testimony will line up with our identity. But there's two last cautions I want to give, and then we're going to pray today, and that's this. And the first one says this. If we're only coming to God to get what we want, he may be running from us. If we only come to God all the time to get what we want, he may be running from us. Oh, you know what it's like, and don't, don't, don't act like you don't. There are people that show up on your phone, you see caller ID, and like, yep, they want something. And after a while, you put under their name, Fred, don't answer. Pops up. Why? 
Because you know the only relationship they have with you is because they want to get something from you. I'm glad nobody here is named Fred because they're like, Pastor, that was mean. <laughs> what does God think of you when you pray and your name pops up on his caller ID? Think about that. Does he say, oh, me, they're showing up again because they see me as useful. And he runs. You say, Pastor, that's not even funny. You wonder why sometimes our prayers aren't answered. Because we really don't care about the relationship. It's usefulness. He knows our needs and issues, and he promised to meet them. We put him first. It's been suggested that one of the reasons God doesn't answer some prayers is that he knows that he will never hear from us again if he answers the prayer. Because what would he have to pray about? I got what I needed. I'm gone. Listen, if he gives you what you want, would you have anything to come to him for? Finally, you're like, thank God. Finally, last warning. Prayerlessness, which is not a word, by the way, but I made it up. Prayerlessness. Maybe, so you don't have to text me or email me, thank you. Prayerlessness may be our greatest sin because of what it says about who we really think is in charge. Our I got this mentality may be our greatest weakness when it comes to our relationship with God. But yet when we practice his presence, we prioritize the pause. What we're saying is, God, I may have the illusion of control, but I know I am not in control. And God, I need you. God, I need you more than I can even state. Because it's a very dangerous place when any part of our lives do we look at God and say, it's okay, I've got this. And saying, saying Father, I live and move and have my being in you. God, everything in my life comes from you. And it's for your glory. When I come into that place where I got to make a decision in my business or I'm trying to hire somebody or anything else, instead of me just blasting through it, I'm saying, why? I'm educated. I know what to do here. Maybe I ought to just stop and say, God, you know more than I do. God, how do I approach this? God, how do I speak to them? When you're in the middle of conflict and, and things are going not so well in your relationship, you, you, don't, you go on YouTube and call up the greatest counseling psychologists and go, well, they said if I do this, this, and this, it'll all work. Instead of saying, God, you made me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Before I was formed, God, you, 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 you put gifts in me, God. God, forgive me for not coming to you first, God, to say, what do I do? How do you change me, God? instead of always praying to change them. You see, guys, it's not in the action that we discover the power and meaning of Christianity. It's in the solitude of submission that we find Christ in our lives really then begin to reflect Him. So I asked this morning, do you prioritize the pause? When's the last time you just came in the presence of God and said, God, I got nothing. I'm not here to say anything. I just want to be in your presence. Or are you just so busy doing that we've forgotten who's really in control? Guys, I want our testimony to line up with our identity. But if I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to spend time with the Father in prayer. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to know who I am, and I'm going to know what I'm here to do. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't help but serve because I've been touched by the Master. 
But it all comes out of that relationship. Otherwise, it's just religion. And I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it again. Our world does not need more religious people. It needs people who have been touched by Jesus.